you have a Bible, you can turn in the New Testament to the book of John. And try to balance our time in the one testament with a reading from the other. So we've been in First Peter for quite some time, and we were reading alongside of that uh, the book of Genesis. And so we finished our time in First Peter. If you remember, when we were in Judges and then Psalms, we were reading through the Gospel of John. You probably don't remember that we left off at John 16, but that's where we did leave off. <laughs> so we resume our reading from the Gospel of John as we turn our time of preaching uh, to the Old Testament as we prepare to take up the book of Micah. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. This is the very word of God. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. And if you need to use the table of contents, don't feel bad. Micah is in the book of the Twelve. Twelve minor prophets, starting with Hosea. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Yotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. 
the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Our great God, how blessed are these promises in which the Lord Jesus Christ so plainly set forth as he ascended and took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. That this was to our advantage that he departed. Such a statement is staggering for our desire is to see him and to be with him. And yet, The goodness of his departure is plain in that he has not left us as orphans, but has poured out the Holy Spirit, who has taken up your seat in our hearts, in your church, and continues the blessed ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, revealing unto us your will for salvation. And pray that the Spirit would attend the word even now. For we know that the Spirit must work we know that the Spirit does work, for your word accomplishes exactly what you intend it to accomplish. So we ask that you would posture our hearts rightly before your word, rightly before the eternal word, that we might come to him and take hold of him by faith, and thus continue to be built up in those blessings which you delight to give through the beloved Son, who brings them to us by his word and by his spirit. Do these things even now to the glory of your great name. Amen. You learn a lot about a book from its opening lines. What are some of the famous opening lines you can think of from some of your favorite books? The the Iliad opens with the rage of Achilles. So you can reasonably assume that this fellow Achilles is going to be important. And he might have some anger issues. Perhaps with the gods. (laughs) Dante's Inferno opens with a man who had lost his way in a dark wood. So you can fairly guess that some sort of journey is going to take place, perhaps from darkness unto light. Anna Karenina, I don't know if you've heard of that one, begins with a line about happiness and families and unhappiness. So you rightly guess that the book is about families and happiness and unhappiness and our various conceptions thereof, and so on and so forth, the opening lines are important. They're usually a type of overture to shift images here from one body of art to another. What is an overture? What well, introduces the themes, the major concerns and loci of consideration, preparing the audience what to look for, and also preparing the audience how to listen. We open this morning the book of Micah, one of the 12 prophets, 12 minor prophets. And the opening word, the opening line, 
prepares us for what to expect. It's going to be a word to cities. Samaria, Jerusalem. Not just cities in the abstract, but these cities, the capital cities of the northern and the southern kingdoms. The people of God, the kingdoms of God on the earth at that time. And God's word to those seats of power. It's going to be a word concerning kings. These three kings of Judah are set forth in anticipation of this word, bringing them to the bar of judgment and asking them, how have you led or misled my people? For this I have appointed you to answer. It's going to be a word concerning villages. Micah is from Morasheth, which is nowhere to speak of. Backwater town, which anticipates another village, nowhere to speak of. A backwater town called Bethlehem, and how God's ways are not our ways, and Jerusalem is despised, and Bethlehem is exalted. But ultimately, and most significantly, it's a word from the Lord. It's God's word. And the content of it can readily be summed up in one word, Micah, which means who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? Micah proclaims. And Micah's very name sets before them. And thus the book of Micah, the opening lines of Micah, prepare us for a word that demands a response. By virtue of the one who speaks it as the true and living God, and by virtue of what it asks. Who is like Yahweh? And in this, it anticipates the incarnate word. Lord Jesus Christ, whose appearance forces a question upon everyone. Namely, who am I? Who do people say that I am? And every single person has to give a response to that question. And make no mistake, no response is a response. It is not a question that can be avoided. And so this morning we open our time in Micah. And to open our time in Micah, we consider the astonishing fact that God speaks and his words demand a response. So let's consider God's word this morning as it came through the prophet Micah. Consider first the faithfulness of God's word. Consider second the power of God's word. And consider third the purpose of God's word. First, the faithfulness of God's word. The very first words of this book the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. The word came to Micah. Like of its own accord? Of its own volition? Kind of. The Spirit of Christ carried along the prophets of old. This quick snapshot of 
the acting word sounds very much like Hebrews, doesn't it? The word of the Lord is living and active. It comes to people. It does things. The word of the Lord came to Micah. And it's rather astonishing that it did. (laughs) The book opens historically in the time of the three kings of Judah set forth here. Judah was the southern kingdom. You can recall in the days following Solomon how the kingdom of Israel was divided under David and Solomon. It was a united kingdom, but following Solomon, it was split. The kingdom in the north named Israel, designated Israel, and the kingdom of the south designated Judah. The book opens here profiling the three kings of the south, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Interestingly, it's silent about the kings in the north. Noteworthy, they're not much to speak of at this point as the northern kingdom is on the cusp of irrevocable apostasy. Micah preaches during the second half of the 8th century, around 740 to 690. And during this time, Israel is going to be destroyed. The northern kingdom is going to be blotted out entirely in 722, the hands of Assyria. It was a dark time for Israel. Israel was always more prosperous economically and almost always apostate spiritually. Those two things side by side are not a coincidence. But Judah is foolishly following in Israel's wake here, especially under King Ahaz. Notoriously, King Ahaz despises the word of the true and living God delivered unto him, specifically through the prophet Isaiah, and yokes himself to the king of Assyria, saying, I am your son. Do for me the things that I want you to do. Ahaz basically makes pagan practice the rule of the land in the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet, to the very end of Samaria's destruction... And even in the face of Jerusalem turning from the way of the Lord, God continues to send his word. God continues to speak to his people. Why? Consider how quick you are to throw up your hands with anyone who thwarts your will. You could even say it a little bit more nobly. Someone who continues to plunge themselves into destruction. Someone who continues to reject the plain truth that they need help. Consider how quick we are to throw up our hands. In some sense, it's fair. But in another sense, it sets the stage for this stunning juxtaposition with the one who is unparalleled. For he continues to send his word. He continues to speak faithfully to his people, even as they show themselves to be foolish in the extreme, sinful in the extreme. The reason he continues to speak faithfully is because of his steadfast love, because of his loyalty to his word and his promises. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is preparing Israel for the coming days when they're going to settle in the land. And he warns them. He says, when you get into the land, you're going to be tempted to try to figure out what God is doing through all sorts of evil and dark ways. You're going to want to consult witches. 
You're going to want to consult necromancers. You're going to want to consult mediums. You're going to want to consult horoscopes, all of which you're going to want to consult to figure out what's going on in these tumultuous days. What's happening and how can I comport myself in a way that will lead to life? He says, you don't need to consult witches. I'll send you my word. I'll send you my prophets. They're going to tell you exactly what you need to know about the ways of God on earth. And this he is doing, and he has done, and he will continue to do, because God's faithfulness is not like our wavering faithlessness. Micah here is yet another iteration of God's faithfulness to that promise, that in the face of his people's plunge into darkness, God is going to continue to call them back. He's going to continue to speak the truth that says, return unto me. Micah says some hard things here, but the fact that he says anything at all is God's great kindness. You can consider the love of parents and friends and what sets them apart. Isn't it partly that they're willing to say things that no one else will say? I was just talking to one of our members about this, how at a certain point in his life, a good friend looked him in the eye and spoke some hard truth to him. I was just talking to my brother on the phone the other day, and he prefaced a hard thing he was about to say to me by saying, you know I love you enough to tell you things you don't want to hear, right? I said, yeah, I definitely do at this point. I'm going to have to call you back. <laughs> But these are some of the excellencies of God's word, are they not? That he doesn't tailor the truth to tickle our ears and to suit our fancy. And the reason why is because of his great steadfast love. Now make no mistake, there are always going to be those who supposedly speak in the name of the Lord, but only ever tell you what you want to hear. Consider the possibility that one of the marks of a true word from the Lord is recognized by the fact that from time to time, it tells you what you don't want to hear. <laughs> it says the hard things that no one else will say to you. And consider the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God showcased his faithfulness in by the true word that he spoke to his people. Does he only tell us what we want to hear? I sincerely pray that you do not think so. He promises to tell us what we need to hear, even if it's not what we want to hear. And if God has promised to do this, and if Jesus Christ has promised to do this, the more interesting question is, where and how does he tell us hard things? If he promises to tell you hard things, presumably he's doing that. But the question is where? Where can you expect those hard things to confront your heart? Well, partly in the church, through the mouths of one another, brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what Paul teaches us. He says we actually owe this responsibility to one another. The entire world will tickle your ears, but in the church we have a moral obligation as those who are bound together in the one who is the truth to speak the truth in love to one another. That's what Paul says explicitly in Ephesians 4, 16 and 25. We speak the truth in love. We put away falsehood, each one speaking the truth with his brother and sister, for we are members of one another. 
the truth in love. We see Micah here speak the truth in love. Even as he delivers oracles of doom, he does so weeping, mourning, a heart rent asunder at the destruction coming upon his people. The Lord Jesus Christ himself wept over Jerusalem, didn't he? The very ones who would nail him to a cross. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he cried out. The truth in love. The truth not with a perverse delight in the disaster that's coming upon another. The truth not with a perverse delight in the higher ground that it gives you in the moment of deliverance so you can somehow look down at your brother or sister who needs the truth. The truth in love who earnestly delights to see Christ exalted and each and every heart surrounding him in awe and faith and obedience as we look to the one who is our life. Can you think of times that God has spoken hard things to you? How about from this pulpit, the ministry of the word? He promises through the proclamation of the whole counsel of God that at some point, it's going to challenge you. (laughs) It's going to feel abrasive. But that abrasiveness is set forth in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ as our true prophet, discharging that great promise that says, I'm going to tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear, because I love you. And I've proven that the cost of my life. Has he spoken hard things to you ever? Isn't that what he did to us in our conversion? speaking hard things about the truth of our sin and the terrible trajectory that we were on? Isn't that what he does to us every time he restores us from our wandering ways? As he brings us back to the one who alone can give life? He speaks hard things to us, but he also sustains us through those hard things, whatever they may be. So we can consider next the power of God's word to sustain When Satan tempted our Lord in the wilderness in the face of exhaustion and hunger and lack, what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God brings a nourishment and a sustenance and a satisfaction that can uphold and sustain in the face of every difficulty this life has in store. That is an astonishing statement. But we see it even flickered forth here in the life of Micah, who possessed God's word as a servant of the true and living God, and by virtue of the possession of that word, was sustained in some really difficult seasons. Consider first, he's sent to a strange place. Micah is from Morasheth. Mentioned it before. It's a little village. It's about 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He was a stranger in the cities of Jerusalem and Samaria. He was known not by his family like the great prophet Isaiah was, who was at home in the royal courts of Judah. Micah was no one from nowhere, and he had to go to the city. He had to go to Samaria. And Jerusalem, these seats of power. And we learn there that these are not just seats of power used for good. These are seats of corruption. Things have gone terribly awry. Wealth 
and power and pleasure have settled into the very foundations of these capital centers of God's people, which is repugnant and abysmal and tragic. And everyone's on the dole. It's not just kings, it's priests and it's prophets and it's governors. It's a veritable Gotham city where everybody's on this corrupt bandwagon. And the Lord says, go. They're my people. You got to go talk to them. This is almost worse than Nineveh. (laughs) We almost preached through Jonah. And then I read Mike. I was like, oh, this is awesome. (laughs) It's almost worse than Nineveh. Nineveh, it's like, well, yeah, it's Nineveh. Nineveh gonna Nineveh. You know what I mean? (laughs) This is Jerusalem and Samaria. Shouldn't be like this. They have the oracles of God. They have the law of God. They have the covenant of God. They have God's faithfulness so vividly on display to them. And corruption. He goes. He goes as a little villager. Think about the difficulty that would have been. It's difficult for me to travel for a week. Let alone travel to a place and say some things that nobody in that place wants to hear where nobody knows me and everyone likely is getting very upset, as was the case for Micah. And yet God's word sustained him, preserved him, as it sent him to a place that was strange and a place that didn't want to hear him. And that's the second difficult circumstance. He was largely ignored and opposed for 30 to 40 years. That's longer than I've been alive. (laughs) From man's point of view, as he's discharging this word, think about the temptation that he would have been beset with. This isn't working. (laughs) This is not having its, its intended effect. He's speaking God's word and people are rising up saying, no, no, don't say that, get out of here. Don't say that, get out of here. Don't say that, get out of here. For 40 years, largely. Consider how many people we've shared the word with. How many people we've prayed for. Children, parents, friends, co-workers. Aren't we all tempted just to toss in the towel? It's not working. This isn't working. Lord, your word doesn't work. It's, it just doesn't work. I don't know. That, you figure it out. It doesn't work. We're all tempted in those seasons of opposition to throw up our hands and say, forget it, it ain't working. Somebody else do it. We do well to remember that God doesn't count time as we count time. The exhortation that comes to us in the face of such things is what Paul says, don't grow weary doing good. In due season, you will reap. Don't grow weary doing good. In due season, you will reap. It didn't look like Micah was having much success. But then you read in Jeremiah, and you find out it was Micah's ministry that actually led to Hezekiah repenting. It was Micah's ministry which actually brought about a king reforming his kingdom. And this reform spared Jerusalem. It was through a brutal set of circumstances. But God's word did what it was intended to do. 
both in judgment and in salvation. And isn't this what Isaiah says? As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, so shall my word be. It shall not return empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. How do you know God's word is doing something? And not just something, what he intends it to do. (laughs) Because he says it is. The proof for us that God's word is efficacious isn't only in the effects that we can observe because we're so frail and wrong-headed in what we look to to indicate success. The evidence that God's word is efficacious comes to us from God's promise that his word is efficacious. It's going forth right now. Some of you are ignoring it to your shame and discredit. And that's God's chastisement. Some of you are heeding it to your salvation and your life, and that is God's blessing. This is what Paul says, isn't it? We go about the scent of Christ from one life unto life, for another death unto death. The word of God is going forth powerfully. The question is, how are you receiving it? God's word sustained his servant in the face of some really difficult circumstances from man's point of view. About four decades of everybody opposing you and yielding no observable fruit. And yet he was faithful. And he was sustained by that word that he delivered. But perhaps most devastatingly of all, he watched his home get destroyed at the hands of the very ones that he was seeking to save. Mike is from Morasheth. We learn very quickly in chapter 1 that not only Morasheth, but all of the surrounding villages, all of the neighboring villages were utterly laid waste by Sennacherib around 700 BC. It was a scene of devastation. There's a reason that Micah issues forth this funeral lament starting in verse 8 as he surveys the destruction, not just of his home, but of all of his friends' homes as This lovely landscape is turned into a nightmarish wasteland. In Gone with the Wind, Scarlet flees Atlanta as those cursed Yankees are coming. The Yankees destroy Atlanta, and she returns to her home to find a landscape set on fire. The previously lush and bountiful country had been turned into a place of death. Her home had escaped the flames, but not really. And it was now surrounded by these visible marks of death, which had once been her friend's home. And it was terrible to behold. And it's even harder for Micah, because the fondness of home that we can all sympathize with, and the tragedy of having to see that home subject to flames and destruction. For Micah, it was even more destabilizing still because his home was the inheritance that he had been given from God. Morasheth actually comes from the word possession or inheritance, and it's another major theme in this book. This wasn't just a happenstance home that he was now lamenting. This was the portion that God had given him. It was the portion that God had given his people. And now it was gone. 
In some ways, it's a similar crisis that the exile caused for an entire generation of Israelites. Our home is gone. The home that you gave us, the home you promised to give us. But what does Moses say? Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, you have been our resting place in all generations. The earthly home that Micah had been given, Morasheth and its verdant landscape, the loveliness that was at his disposal was always intended to prompt his eyes as it did Abraham's to seek a city whose foundations are unshakable, the builder and author of which is God. And it was only through possession of the word of God, sustaining in the face of earthly destruction, that Micah was brought through, continuing to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record here. And I know this might rankle, but remember what I said earlier about the hard things. God has not promised us a Christian nation. He's promised us no specific iteration of an earthly kingdom. He has promised us a new creation, the fruits of which have dawned in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our participation in that resurrection life and the new creation fruit which is being brought about by the Holy Spirit in faith and hope and love, which sustains in the face of all earthly devastation and all earthly prosperity. Because the devastation reminds us that we need to seek a better city. And the prosperity reminds us that none of that actually satisfies anyway. And the truth is plainly set forth. That it is only the new creation. The city, the builder of which is God. The foundation of which is the Lord Jesus Christ that will ever satisfy. Micah had a vivid encounter with that truth as he watched his earthly home destroyed and yet was sustained declaring, blessed be the name of the Lord. God's word sustains in the face of displacement. God's word sustains in the face of rejection. God's word sustains in the face of an inexplicable disaster that would have unsettled to his very core. And yet, surprisingly enough, the purpose of God's word is not ultimately to sustain us. It does that. But it has a greater purpose still that encompasses nourishment and sustenance, but also much more besides. The ultimate purpose of God's word is to exalt the Lord. And so we can consider last the purpose of God's word, namely the exaltation of God. Who is like Yahweh? Everywhere Micah went, he prompted eyes heavenward and forced hearts to grapple with what they had placed in the stead of the incomparable one. Who is like Yahweh? Stephen Dempster, one of the commentators on this book, highlights two ways that this question functions. What is, who is like Yahweh? The first is as a precursor to judgment. There's both of a, l- a lament and a warning in this question. Who is like Yahweh? No one. Yahweh is holy. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be feared, worshipped, adored, and obeyed. Jerusalem and Samaria looked heavenward and saw a God who could be trifled with, ignored, 
manipulated, fit into their previously established trajectory towards their sinful desires. Who is like Yahweh? No one. Sin is no minor matter, Micah declares. Transgressions are no minor matter, Micah declares. Idolatry is no minor manner, matter, Micah declares. And it's not someone else's sin. It's your sin. It's my sin. It's our sin, which is no minor matter. James Boyce highlights that the sinful heart seizes upon words of judgments pronounced against others and the folly of consoling ourselves into thinking, oh good, it's against them, not me. Good, it's for them, not me. God's word of judgment on the sins of Samaria is a warning for Jerusalem. God's warning about sins for Jerusalem is a warning for the world. And God's word about sin in the cross of Jesus Christ extends to every single person. This is what sin looks like. This is what justice looks like. This is what we deserve by virtue of our idolatrous hearts. But there's also a sense in which this question is a lament. Who is like Yahweh? Sadly, no one. Yahweh's holiness was the basis for the call to his people to be holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. Who is like Yahweh? He looks down from heaven and he sees no one. No one is like Yahweh. And there's a sense in which both of those questions anticipate what he's about to do. He's about to come in judgment. And this judgment is set before God's people as a stark warning that God takes his covenant seriously. That you know, oh man, what the Lord requires of you. And the fact that he has found the entire people of God wanting is a tragedy. For they possess the very words of life. And if this were the only aspect to this question, it would be a book of pure doom. But it isn't. Micah's book is comprised of three cycles, all of which go from judgment to salvation, from doom to blessing. And the basis for that salvation? Astonishingly, God's holiness. That this is a God like no other. Micah ends his book as the book begins with the word Micah. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Who is like this God who continues in faithfulness to such a wrong-headed people? Who is like this God who continues to do good to those who ignore him? Who is like this God who retrieves his people when they plunge themselves into ruin? Who is like this God who forgives sins, who removes iniquity, who makes a way for sinners to dwell in the presence 
of the Holy One of Israel. Jesus asks and answers this same question in his ministry, doesn't he? Who is like Yahweh? And then he answers, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the exact image of the invisible God. And we see God's holiness on display in the perfect life that Jesus Christ discharged. Obedient from front to back, not in ideal circumstances, but in brutal circumstances, casting himself upon his Father's perfect provision. You see the holiness of God on display in the fact that the Son was subject to suffering as the curse of sin for his entire life reaching its terrible climax upon the cross where the wrath of God was poured out in full upon the blameless lamb. You see the holiness on display in that he stood in our stead, removing sin, making a way for sinners to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Who is like Yahweh, Jesus declares, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word of God which reached for the prophet Micah and brought him into dark circumstances and sustained him there and proclaimed the wonders of this excellent one. It's purely and plainly set on display in the Lord Jesus Christ who continues to declare that this is a God like no other, who extends salvation unto sinners. And those who reject him, the word has had its effect. And those who come to him, the word has had its effect. Come to him. Come to him and live. For there is no one like our God. Let's pray. How lovely to consider your great faithfulness, sending forth your servants, the prophets of old, to call your people back from their sin and their ruin. How lovely to consider that you preserved for yourself a remnant. How lovely to consider that your faithfulness to your promises is plainly on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. The true Israel, the true prophet, the one who makes known who you are perfectly and calls the world to respond. We pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would cause us to bow in the face of this most excellent one, that we might continue to taste of your riches, that we might continue to declare that you alone are worthy of our worship. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.